is the traditional greeting in Nicaragua. I am Brandon Hopper, and this is the Life in Paradise podcast. The only podcast whereby the host doesn't talk about anything to do with the title. But you know that by now. You also know that I don't do pre-recorded intros. You also know that I'm a regular dude with a regular job and lots and lots of opinions. So I come here to get them off my chest. Lots of them you'll agree with, some of them you won't. You might even hate me. And that's okay. Because you don't know me. If you knew me, you probably wouldn't hate me. One of the purposes of this podcast is to try to spread the word. That kind of sounds like Northern Podcast. But I'm not from the North, I'm from Texas. Corpus Christi, Texas. And as I was saying, one of the purposes of this podcast is to try to spread the word to disagree without being disagreeable. Because in reality, all our disagreements are is a difference of opinions. Got some interesting stuff to talk about today, so I won't delay. Sit back, relax, and let me run the string to the hot air balloon for about the next 30 to 45 minutes. Welcome back, guys. This episode is a bonus episode. I know lots of you don't know, but I was recording an episode about 24 hours ago. And since I had some extra time today, I figured I'd knock another one out since I skipped last week. Throughout the week, I just go through life and I put notes into my phone of all the things that I think about, things I want to talk about, things I want to get off my chest. One of the things that has our country divided right now amongst many is this rising or this um, existing, I don't know if it's, if it's still trending upwards or not, but there's this disdain for police officers. And I kind of, if you go back and listen to my old, old, old podcasts, I took shots at the cops. And I feel like it's my responsibility to go back and straighten things up if there's some contradicting information. And so I haven't gone back and listened to the specifics of them. But I kind of think that I was jaded on my viewpoint of what police officers were. Because since then, I've gotten to know quite a few. I've gotten involved in the working dog training world and and I've met plenty of cops and working dog handlers. And and I think that I kind of fell to the ideas that everyone else does. And that's that all cops have this mentality and this set of ideals and who we think they are. And that in and of itself is extremely judgmental. So I'll be the first to say I think I may have been that guy. Uh, it was about six years ago. So I've grown up a little bit since then. And it goes to show you how things change and how your viewpoints can change. And if you're truly open to accepting new ideas, then eventually things change. And as long as you understand why or what changed within you and you can explain them, I think that's a good thing. I think when you have people like Bo Jiden, who does a flip-flop 180 degrees and then never addresses why he changed or what changed in his mind or his heart or his life or what led him to a different path. If you're willing to say those things, I have way more respect for you. There's nothing wrong with things changing over time. I feel like it's a natural progression for for the, the thoughts to change and evolve. As long as you're acquiring new information and you're taking it upon yourself to to further your knowledge and understanding of a subject, then little changes are, are normal. And, and sometimes thoughts can evolve based on your experiences. For the most part, everyone's individual version of the Ten Commandments 
shouldn't change after about the age, of, I don't know, 30, 35, something like that. Not because you can't have a, an experience that makes you change, but generally your morals and principles and, and the core of yourself is the same once you're an adult. It can change, and but like I said, as long as you know why or how, then that's fine. I have no problem with that. It's these politicians that change every 10 years and give no explanation as to why that I cannot stand. But if you think back to the 70s and 80s, the stigma of being a police officer was different. You know, they were kind of heroes. When I was growing up, everyone wanted to be a police officer and everyone wanted to hang out with the police officers and get to touch their badge and their gun and their cars and all that was cool. And now we have the media telling people that, that all cops are racist, that they beat people up and that they're unjustified in what they do. But what the media fails to do is tell the kids the types of people that these cops are dealing with. That's another topic. But here we are in 2022, and the general consensus of police officers is entirely different. But I just don't think that in the 70s and 80s and, heck, even in the 90s, screaming defund the police would have been preposterous. If you went back to the the cocaine crime wave of the 80s and you said, hey, guys, we're really... um." These crime laws are too racist, so we need to defund the police when you have tons of people that are getting killed at the hands of criminals every day. But for whatever reason, here we are today, and we've convinced a lot of cities that they should defund the police and that they should go soft on crime. And if you look at the statistics, you'll see that the crime is up like double in all the large cities this year over last year. Now, I know there's some people who want to blame it on covid I won't accept that. I won't accept that because, I mean, if we're being honest, the types of people that commit these murders and these crimes and robberies and carjackings and senseless shootings, that COVID didn't really affect them. They don't have jobs where they go to every day, nine, eight, nine, ten hours a day. They don't have someone that relies on them to show up at work. These were the same kind of people that were robbing and gangbanging two years ago, three years ago. It's not like we had an influx of robbers because COVID was bad. Nobody went broke from COVID other than a few businesses. The government bailed everyone out pretty much for the most part. And I still think it was a bad idea for the record. But my point is, let's not blame COVID for the crime waves that we're seeing. And if you don't believe me, I just ask that you go look up your own statistics and you'll see what the crime's doing in the largest cities. It's not an accident. This is what I believe as part of a larger plan, and I know, I know there's people out there who think that it's a conspiracy theory. Nowadays, anything you say that doesn't align with the narrative of the mainstream media is called a conspiracy theory. And that's fine. I'll wear a tinfoil hat if I need to. But this is just an example as to how, how things can change over time and how the media and Hollywood and these people can, can progress the shift of a movement just from covering it, just from writing stories. And eventually you'll see the backlash. You'll see people who have had enough of innocent people dying in their neighborhoods and they will scream for more policing and the pendulum will swing back the other way and we'll have more cops, we'll throw more money and we'll refund the police and we'll overfund it. And then some people will get beat up and shot and killed by the cops and it'll go back the other way. How long does the pendulum take to swing each way? I don't know. It's looking like about 30 years, 20, 30 years. So how much further to the side of crime are we going to go before it shifts? Who knows? That remains to be seen. 
But I think it's important to note how things change over time and how they can be changed with the help of media and influential people. Now, does that mean I think we should censor them? Of course not. Of course not. I think it's our responsibility to decipher what's true, what's not, and what we're going to accept and what we're going to decline. If you think about another example of this, it'd be SeaWorld or the the idea that we should keep marine mammals in captivity. When these types of places first came on the scene, they were being built, they were being invested in. I remember back in the 90s, we'd go to them, me and my mom, we lived in San Antonio, we'd go to SeaWorld all the time. Didn't think twice about the animals living in a cage. Didn't even cross my mind. If my mom was here today, I would go back and ask her if it crossed her mind then, because I was just a kid. I didn't know any better. But I feel like as time goes on, the perception of what humans think is acceptable and unacceptable changes. And and to me, SeaWorld is just a great example of this because, I mean, now if someone asks me, hey, do you think it's okay to keep whales in these tiny little cages? I mean, I have mixed feelings. But if you'd asked me back then, I would say, of course it's fine. They're just whales or what, whatever. I don't know what I would have said because I wasn't an adult back then. But I would have had a response and I don't think it would be along the lines of, yeah, it's kind of crappy, you know. And I'm not going to go into my specific feelings on the whole situation right now because it's too much. But I kind of wrestle with the idea. I see the advantages. I see the disadvantages of both. And I can understand it when people who don't like it and they don't think it's worth it, I understand where they're coming from. I also understand where the people are coming from who thinks that we should have it, and it's a good thing. And what's unfortunate is typically the people who want to do away with something, the people that want to end things, scream louder. The people who want to keep things status quo or conserve them the way they are, they're just kind of going through life. You know, they're, they're doing what's important to them. They're making decisions that affect them and their family. They're not activists. They're not seeking out to protect a group or a tribe or an animal or a tree or something. And what makes the struggle kind of unbalanced or unfair, if you, if you think of it like a tug of war, you have one side who wants to always change things and make things different and rewrite the rules. The other side is like, let's just keep things how they are. Whenever a need comes up to do something, we'll change it. Let's take laws away that are bad. And so they're kind of just digging their heels in. These are the, these are the people like me who like, I'm not out to change the world. I don't want to provide rules for people to tell them what they can and can't do and where they can spend their money and what they can name their kids and all that stuff doesn't matter to me. I'm focused on my little bubble, the things around me, the things that I can change personally without hurting other people. I try to help people when I can. If it makes me feel good, makes them feel good. I think it's a good thing to want to help people. And sure, if something came up that I was passionate enough about, that there was some snail in South Africa that... If we didn't get out there and save him, he was going to die, and I was a snail lover, then sure, maybe I would spend every last dime trying to save the snail. But I think it's more important that we focus on the things that we can change around us. And if everyone did that, if everyone just agreed to not go to SeaWorld, they would go away. We don't have to convince other people that we're right. Because in that process of trying to convince someone that we're right, we're telling the other person that they're wrong. And maybe they are wrong. Maybe they are. But the number one way to not convince someone that they're wrong is to tell them they're wrong. That some people that you don't know, that you have no invested um, friendship in, that you don't know them from Adam, and someone that comes up to you and tells you that what you're doing is wrong, you'll never see a change. 
Never. This is why documentaries are so powerful, because most of them have, have an agenda. And you go into it not knowing that, thinking that it's an unbiased documentary, and it's just it's documenting these things that are happening. Sure, there are lots of them out there that are unbiased, specifically like the nature ones. You know, I love those. But for the most part, documentaries have an agenda. And I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly fine with that, because if a documentary presents something in a fair way, and it exposes something that, that you had never seen before, and that changes your mind, well, then that's great. But being an extreme activist, to me, is not great. I don't think you should aim to shut people down unless they're directly affecting you or your family or your business. But people definitely change over time. And I have a theory. I don't, I don't know if it's right. It's just a theory. It could probably be taken the wrong way. I'm not implying that we should have done things different. I'm just saying that I wholeheartedly believe that we would have ended slavery out of our moral convictions if the law didn't require us to. And I think that that's back during the time of slavery, there was two groups of people. There was people who thought we should still keep slaves around. And there was people who thought we need to get rid of slaves throughout the entire country. Now it's hard to believe this. And some people will say that I'm lying, but the people who wanted to get rid of slavery, it wasn't just about humans being free. Now, now, I can't say for sure, but I, I speculate that. And I hope there was a big humanity part of it. I really do. But the people who wanted to end slavery also would benefit financially if slavery ended. Because these were the people who owned factories that needed laborers. And they didn't need uneducated agrarian workers, which is what the farms and plantations needed. So if you take away your competitors' inputs, slavery, you now can compete with them or maybe even do better than them. Once again, this is all my theory. So if I ever get famous one day and people quote me, you know what, this is just me speculating. I don't know if I'm right, I don't know if I'm wrong, but I feel like that a lot of people that wanted to end slavery, they wanted to end it so they could benefit. Their factories could grow more, do more, have more. Because the things that are happening today that one day we'll look back on and we'll say, oh my gosh, how can we do that? How could we have done that? How could we have kept whales in those little swimming pools? But during the time that it's happening, you don't necessarily have this huge division. You have some people who are like, eh, some people are like, uh-uh, and you have everyone in between. As time goes on, it gets wider and wider and wider and wider. So when you get further out from that decision point or that that thing, so let's just say that 100 years from now, we look back at putting whales in pools, and it was the most cruel thing ever. We learn more about whales. We discover that they like to be free, and they like to swim, and how they go into depression. And as time goes on, we figure out more of that stuff. It seems farther and farther from reality that we had them in pools. And I feel like it's the same way with slavery. Obviously, slavery is a terrible, terrible thing, and no one should ever have slaves. But I feel like at the time that it was all going down, there were some people who were like, yeah, you know, we should probably think about getting rid of slaves. And sure, there were some people who was like, we have to end slavery right now. We got to end it. And I agree, there, there was a small group of those people. But I don't think it was clear and cut, divided down the middle, north and south. You know, if you're from the south, you want slaves. If you're from the north, you don't want slaves. I feel like there was a big blurry line there. And some people said, well, yeah, I have slaves. But man, I'll take care of them. Look, they got their own room. They eat well. They get to have kids. They get to reproduce. Their kids go to school. Because there were slaves that were doing that too. So uh, 
I guess my whole point is that some things will change over time without laws. Some things you need to put a law in place to keep them from changing or to make them change, and I'm okay with that. I just think we need to critically evaluate the things that we implement laws for and how fast we implement them and how we don't take them away when they prove ineffective. Like Here's an example of something that, that changed over time uh, without laws is having a... <laughs> Having a, a ball of bourbon sitting on top of the credenza behind your desk, you know, and, and your your homeboy would come in to do some business and you each have a little bourbon and clink glasses, that's gone. It doesn't happen anymore. There wasn't a law that said, hey, guys, it's now illegal to drink at work. Businesses just figured out, hey, it's better for business if we don't have people that are drunk at the office grabbing girls' asses and whatnot. It's just better for things. And so it went by the wayside. I'm not going to lie, though. <laughs> I do miss, see, I have this vision. I'm going to give you guys a little glimpse into my brain. I have this vision of like a, an old school office in like the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. And like this dude's sitting in there. He's got a big old Texas star on the wall behind him. And he's got an American flag on one side and a Texas flag on the other. And he's sitting in there and he pushes on his phone. Beep. And, it, and she says, yes, sir. It's his secretary. Yeah, that's one thing we don't have anymore. We don't have no secretaries. I used to love an old man say, get a hold of my secretary. She'll get you all fixed up. Her name's Betty. So so he would pick up the phone. Bob. Bob would pick up the phone. Beep. Yes, sir, Bob. Uh, Betty, get me get me John Smith on the phone. Get him on the phone. And boom, he would just hang up. Wouldn't say bye or nothing. And he'd turn around and he'd pour him a little sniffer, scotch, bourbon. Maybe even light up a cigar, and he'd wait for the phone to ring. Yeah, and it'd be Johnny. And so, he, in the instead of dialing the number to get Johnny on the phone, he would just tell Betty to do it and make himself a scotch and a cigar. You know, now we have we have personal assistants who email and set up a time for a Zoom call, and that's great. Things change. We didn't, you know, with technology, things adapt, things evolve, and that's okay. But I miss the old school ways. I miss the old guys sitting in there with a yellow stains on the ceiling from smoking cigars in his office. One of these days, I don't know when, but I'm going to have myself an office and you're going to walk into it and you're going to feel like you walked back into like 1974 or maybe like 72. And it's going to be all the things that you remember seeing when you went to your papa's office at the county commissioner's office. Or you went to, to Peepaw's law firm to the top building. And you drew all day. You sat there on a $25,000 desk and drew with crayons all day. And you didn't even realize it. You had no idea what was going on. I'm going to have me an office that's going to have all that stuff. And you're going to walk in. You're going to go, whoa, this is awesome. This is so cool. It's going to have a big rotary phone. And then I'm going to have a desk outside the door that says Betty. This <laughs> is going to be Betty's chair. I don't know. One day I'll hire a Betty. And she'll work for me. She'll sit outside my office and I'll tell her to get people on the phone. Or maybe I'll say, Betty, Betty, book me a flight. I want to go to India. Business class. Sometime in April. Be great. Thanks, Betty. And then one day when Betty retires, I'm going to buy her something like a house or a super nice car that she's always wanted or pay like for her kids to go to college. I feel like, I feel like it's really cool when guys who've made it have like one secretary that was with him the whole way and they just take care of him and just make it rain on him. That's what Warren Buffett did. He's got one gal, his gal, 
that's prepared all the reports for him every single year, done everything by his side. I don't know. I think that's super cool. I think it's kind of going away, but I think it's super cool. And most guys who have had a Betty next to him the entire way would be absolutely worthless without Betty because Betty fills in the gaps that you can't get to. You can't fill. You're not good at it. You don't know the details. You don't understand how things work. All you know is that you need this to happen, and then Betty makes it happen. And if it weren't for Betty, you'd have to get somebody new that you'd have to train, and they wouldn't know you, and they wouldn't know what time you like to show up for work, what time you like to go to lunch, who you'd like to take calls from, who you don't take calls from. That's valuable. That is highly, highly valuable because these guys are just paying for their time. That's really, that's all they pay for is buying their time back. So if anybody knows a Betty, send her my way. And now it's time for a slurry Biden clip of the day. I know how much you guys love these. So this particular clip is Biden trying his hardest to identify with black people. And he wants to explain why, you know, back in the day they used to call them colored kids. He didn't really talk about much more other than that in this clip. There's so many things about this clip that I'd like to dissect. But the first and simple ones are just listen to his tone of voice. Listen to how he sounds kind of tired and uh, forgetful and, uh, you know, uh, not just the opposite of powerful. And I don't know how else to explain it other than that. When someone talks, you feel their emotion. You feel what they're saying. You feel their passion. Or sometimes they just get up there and say like whatever the robot tells them the, to say. And you shouldn't want that kind of person leaving your country. And so I play these clips to show people why I feel the way I feel about Biden. That doesn't mean that you have to feel the same way. You may feel like, well, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he can't quite structure a sentence. That's okay. He's better than Trump because he doesn't do mean tweets. And that's perfectly fine. That's your opinion. But in my opinion... In order to initiate change, you put information out there. You put it out there and you give your commentary. And maybe it changes and maybe it doesn't. I don't run around telling people they're idiots for voting for Biden. But I will put these videos up so that people get access to the information and they can make their own decision. And there's some that will say that that's what they did. Joe Rogan using the N-word. Not true at all. They tried to cancel him because of his political viewpoints. Very, very different situation here. So listen to the leader of the free world, the most powerful man on the planet Earth, hypothetically, although that wouldn't prove to be true if he got in a boxing match with anyone else. Listen to how he struggles to speak. Listen to how he has no confidence in his voice. There's no authoritarian. You know, the only thing that this guy does is just he just raises his voice whenever he wants to make a point. And that's not how you do it. And the last thing about this clip is that at the very end, he gets confused. And he says, we, we didn't have coloreds. We were referring to black people as colored, colored kids. He's, we didn't have coloreds in Scranton and Delaware. And I'm sorry, but I don't think that I would confuse the city where I grew up with a different state. I would have never said, well, when I grew up, we didn't call them coloreds in Plano, Louisiana. <laughs> you see, you see, your mind's got to get a little bit crisscrossed for you to say that. Your mind's got to get a little bit confused for you to say to you mix up your home state the state where you were born and raised compared to the state where you live now or when i was li living in nicaragua i would have never said well where i used to live in uh in houston florida because i grew up there and i know that houston's not in florida just listen i remember sitting on 
going to a little Catholic grade school in Claymont, Delaware, which was a steel town that was dying. And the bus would go, my mother would drive me to school parking lot. It was called Holy Rosary School from a little, it was called Brookview Apartments. It used to be Section 8 housing later. It used to be Section 8 housing later. And, uh, and I get out of the bus, I get out of the car. I get out of the bus, I get out of the car. And that's where I-95 runs parallel to these days. Very, very important that you know that that's where I-95 runs parallel these days. Very important to the story. And, uh, and I said, Mom, why are all those kids, it was then called colored, why are all those colored kids in that bus? Because in Scranton, there weren't any. There were very few blacks. So they're not allowed to go to school with us here in Delaware. Okay, listen, guys. After I listened to that again, I figured out that he was, his stories, it's my fault, my fault. He wasn't referring to Scranton as being in Delaware. He was talking about Scranton and then moving to Delaware. Now, it took me four times going through that to figure it out. So I could have just ripped on him and convinced you all that that's what he meant, but that's not what he meant. I figured it out. Either way, either way, what he was saying, his mind was still getting crisscrossed. When I when they get out of, when I get out of the bus when I get out of the car you know it's 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 clear to me his mind is not there that's just my opinion you may think he's sharp as a tack although I would love to bet I would love to <laughs> I would take super super long shot odds that Biden could complete a level two Sudoku puzzle in less than an hour and I don't even know what those puzzles are but I know they're not for idiots. So if anyone wants to gamble on whether or not he can do it, or maybe even a word, a crossword puzzle or a word find, <laughs> I honestly think he would just sit there and stare at it and drool a little bit and look up with his mouth open and go, oh, <laughs> that's what he would do. Thank goodness he's fixing the supply chains. Okay. Now I know you hear me say all the time, that his brain is mushy. He can't complete a thought. He can't complete a sentence. But I don't often go back and play clips from where he was cognizant and he was able to connect the dots. So here's a clip from 2008. This was, um, I think it was like a some sort of forum or symposium about healthcare. So that's not really that important. I want you to listen to how he just, his thoughts flow more. He's more concise I'm not, I'm not asking you to listen to his points or what he's making is valid or invalid. I just want you to pay attention to the way that his thoughts flow, the way that he connects his words, his tone of voice. He's still a very, very weak man. He doesn't speak with much of authority. There's no, not a lot of emotion there. He's, so that, that hasn't changed much. He's very quiet when he talks. and he just, In, in my opinion, that should not be the leader of our country. Um, but either way, just pay attention to his thought flow, his sentence structure, his connecting of the dots, uh, how sharp you would expect him to be on his feet. Our opening question, which is this, do you believe all Americans should have health insurance coverage? And if so, and if you're elected president, how will you move toward this goal? Well, I do think all Americans should have uh, health care coverage. As our host, uh, when I was introduced, pointed out, I've watched over the last uh, uh, 30-some years, uh, presidents make their best efforts at dealing with both access and cost. And one of the things that I think should be said in their defense, if you will, is that we used to have this polemic argument about whether or not 
um, health care was a right, uh, a, a right that all Americans had, or it was a privilege. We're well beyond that. We're well beyond that. The advantage I'll have as President of the United States of America is that usually warring uh, ideological factions, the Chamber of Commerce and Labor, they're all in the same place because they're all in trouble. Everybody. Okay, you see that? Do you see the difference between the two? I sure hope so because it was clear as day to me. There wasn't a lot of stopping, getting confused, mouth opening, going, oh, was none of that. So while I think he was still a weak speaker, a weak leader, a weak man who sells secrets to foreign governments for a living, his brain was all there. He was probably moving and shaking, cutting all kinds of deals to Russian, Chinese, Ukrainians, everybody getting paid, give me paid, give me my money, my money, my money, my money. Pay my son, Hunter, smartest man in the world, been in rehab six times, but let's not talk about that. So I think that he's on his way down. There's no possible way he'll be able to make it to year four. I just don't think so. It's my opinion. March 1st, we have the State of the Union. Should be a great time. Looking forward to it. I don't have cable, but I'll have to figure out how to watch it. And one more thing. Had the Biden of 2008 been the one who was elected, I, I probably would, I mean, I would not be this hard on him. I just wouldn't be because he was there. He had the ability to make decisions. What's scary about it is that if he can't make decisions, who is? Who's making the decisions that he should be making? Because they're not being held accountable for anything. And that's scary. Speaking of making bad decisions, going to lighten it up a little bit. I know how everybody gets so depressed hearing about how Biden sliding. For those of you that don't know, I live in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is about 350 to 400,000 people situated right on the Bay of Corpus Christi and about two and a half hours from Mexico. So we have a largely Hispanic population, Mexican-Americans, and so a lot of their food influence has made it here, which, hey, I am a fan of. I do love some Mexican food. And they've also nicknamed some of the foods, like a fusion food. I'm going to tell you what it is here in a second. There's... (laughs) There's a, there's a way that they take Spanish and English and mix them together, and I find it delightful. I love it. So there's a menu around town, various different restaurants, or not a menu. There's a menu item, rather, around town that's that's got, it's the same thing, kind of, at every menu. I'm having a hard time this morning, y'all. It's the same food, kind of. And it can be on a Mexican food restaurant's menu, steakhouse restaurant menu, and it's called... Corpito fries. Corpito fries. And corpito means like little corpus. Like it's a term of endearment for something that you like or just a little bit. When you add ito onto the end of something in Spanish, like um, if I was talking to my little dog Bronco, I would say, oh, Bronquito, Bronquito. And that means like little Bronco, like little cute doggy. <laughs> that's adding ito on the end. That's kind of what it means. Like It's kind of a term of endearment. And so at every restaurant in town, well, not every restaurant, but most restaurants in town, you can order what's called corpito fries. And it's basically a pile of fries covered in whatever (laughs) that restaurant's specialty is. So if you go to a taqueria, they're going to cover them in carne asada. If you go to a steakhouse, they're going to cover it in some chopped up steak. If you're at an Italian place, they're going to have pepperoni on them and then they cover them in whatever kind of cheese they got typically there's some kind of sauce involved and they serve it up and i just think i don't know i i love regional foods 
I love regional accents. I love the fact that we have this huge country and we can have a coon ass from South Louisiana and we can have a Michigander from the Upper Peninsula and they will be so different. And that's what makes America great. We don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to eat the same food. And I'm okay with that. We don't have to watch the same TV shows. We don't have to like the same president. And that's okay. But I've been wanting to share the Corpito fries for a while. I don't I don't eat them that much because, you know, I try to eat as least unhealthily as, as I can. As much as I kind of would like a big pile of fries smothering things. It kind of grosses me out a little bit. And it's just too much. It's too it's too much extra, as the kids say these days. So yeah, that's the corpito fries. Food is such an amazing thing. It's a it's a way to to share experiences and commonalities with people that you have nothing else in common with, and that's why I think it's so so incredible that, that, that culture has evolved around food. Speaking of culture evolving, I had to look this one up because it had been going around the social interwebs, and these fools who make these iPhones are really getting ready to make a pregnant man emoji. They're going to make an emoji of a man who's knocked up. They feel that there is such a need to have an emoji for a pregnant man that they're going to invest the time and energy and resources into creating and implementing a man who is pregnant emoji. Now, I sit there and think, is Apple doing this because it's profitable? Is it profitable? No, you don't sell emojis. You don't really you don't really make money off emojis. So why would they do it? Do they really care? Do they does Apple do the people who run Apple have a deep down sense of sentiment for men who are getting pregnant? And how how many men are pregnant? I'm gonna look it up. You you're not gonna know, but I'm gonna pause it and come back. Right now, in your head, I want you to guess at the number. And I, I couldn't find the data for the US. Couldn't do it. Probably not out there. Probably not enough track keeping yet. So for Australia, number of male identified people giving birth in 2020. Now, Australia, population is way smaller than the U.S. But I'll just save you the heartache. 75. 75 people. So let's just say that, I don't know, 100 times that in the U.S., 7,500, which I don't think is right. If I had to guess, I would say there's 100 or less People in the U.S. who call themselves a man giving birth. But let's just say they're 7,500 per year. That's nothing. That's virtually 0%. So why did Apple do it? Why do they feel the need to make the pregnant man emoji? So this is what you call virtue signaling. They're not trying to win the hearts of pregnant men. They're trying to win the hearts of the people who scream out that we need to protect the rights of the pregnant men. And they're beating people at their own game. And what's odd to me is that there's probably far more people who think that it's okay to celebrate Confederate soldiers than there are pregnant men, but you'll never find a Confederate flag or anything resembling that. Heck, they even took the gun. There was a little gun emoji. It was like a little revolver. They took that one off, and they replaced it with a little water gun, a green gun with a little orange tip on the end because guns are bad. So this should tell you where Apple stands. This should tell you what's important to them. And you know what? You can decide whether or not to buy their products. Listen, I still buy their phones. I mean, I have like five Apple products, so I don't hate them too much. 
I just think that it's important that we recognize what their goals are. Because if we know what their goals are, we can make sure that we're not part of it. We're not, we're not succumbing to their intentions. There's really only two phones to choose from, iPhone and an Android. And I stick with iPhone because it's what I know how to use. I'm not willing to ditch them because of the pregnant man emoji. But I think it's super important that we recognize, we see that the way that they, they can kind of steer, the, the way that the people go who follow them. And you know what? That's their right. It's their right to do it. I may not, I don't remember who said it, Voltaire, I think. I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend your right to say it to the death. Now, the people who try to cancel everybody, they won't say that. They will not say that because they think that people are too impressionable to be told just, just anything. We, got, we have to be careful when we tell the dumb people. They might believe it and rise up against us. You're gonna, y'all going to be learning the hard way about that story called The Boy Who Cried Wolf. For my next trick, I'm going to play you a clip of Malcolm X, which was a civil rights activist in the 60s. I think it was the 60s. I don't even much know, but I think it was around the 60s. And he was very intent on warning the black people, or I say the black people, he was very intent on warning the black population that white men, all white men had it out for them. And that white men wanted to use them as a political football, and they just wanted their vote. And I think this is true. I th- I, well, I think some of this is true. I feel sorry for black people who really want to get involved in the process and they want to understand the political system. They want to support their candidate and they just get tossed around like a political football. You, you, you hear these people say it, the black vote, we got to get the black vote, got to black vote, got to get the black vote, got to get the black vote. It's just a freaking vote. They want, that's all they want. They want the freaking vote. Okay. So anyway, Malcolm X figured this out. He saw it. He's talking about it. I don't agree with everything this guy says. I do agree with some of the stuff that he says. He talks about the worst enemy of the black man. Just listen. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power. Amen. But the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. Amen. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon. And this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. That's so true. That is so true. The white liberal wants to show everyone who they're friends with, who they support, how nice they are, how giving they are. They want credit for these things. If they didn't, they wouldn't do things like say, we're going to pick a black woman for the vice president. And then we're going to, we don't know who we're going to pick for the Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court House, uh, Justine, uh, Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court uh, judge. Well, but it's going to be a black woman. Why? You want credit. That's all you want. You don't care about the black woman. I don't believe they do. I believe Joe Biden knows more racist jokes than lots and lots of people. And you know what? I got a newsflash. Trigger warning. I'm okay with racist jokes. I'm okay. Because what a racist joke really is, it's just making a joke about a difference in culture. Racist jokes aren't hatred. Let me back up a little bit. Most jokes that are classified as racist jokes are just making fun of a difference in culture. And I'm okay with those types of jokes. I'm okay. I'm okay to joke about that white people can't dance. And that white people love popcorn. The white people love straws. They drink out of straws. Like That's okay. 
It's okay to have a joke about Asian people eating dinner on the floor because Asian people eat dinner on the floor. It's okay. It's okay to have a joke about what types of food people eat, especially if they really eat that kind of food. That doesn't mean you hate them. When a comedian's up on stage and he tells jokes about things, does that mean he hates them? No. It's comic relief. It is a way, it's an art form that we've used to express our opinions about things that may be difficult to express without humor. And there's nothing wrong with that. It all boils down to the intentions of your heart. What do you want to see happen? What should be the outcome? Do, would you like to eliminate all black people from the U.S.? Yes, you're a racist. You're a racist. Do you think it's funny that black people can do certain things that white people can't do and vice versa? Do you think that's funny? Mm-hmm, something, yeah. Then you're not a racist. Just because you find humor in differences doesn't mean you hate someone based on their skin color. This whole thing has got to stop about putting people in boxes and assuming, well, if X, then Y. If Y, then Z. If you hate this, then you must love that. That's what's pushing our country apart. It's not politicians. It's not movie stars. They're helping. They're, they're pushing people to, to that method. But what's really, really driving a stake between us are the people who criticize people for being something, but they do it themselves. That's the problem. Speaking of choices, the other day I was thinking about the weather, how nice it was outside, and how I wish I could live somewhere that was that nice year-round. It was like 75 degrees. And I was thinking, man, where in the world could I live that has beautiful scenery and great weather? And then the third for me would be access to hobbies. But so, th so then that here's how my rabbit hole brain works. Then I got to thinking, man, I wonder what the worst place to live would be. Where would it, where would it be brutal to live? And then I was thinking, would it be worse to live in the desert or the cold weather? So then I just Googled worst place to live in the world. And this city came up. <laughs> I was in tears when I was reading this article. Okay, I, I, I don't know why, but it was just it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So there's this city in Norway called Longyearbyen. I'm just guessing how Longyearbyen. Longyearbyen. It's my best Norwegian accent. Longyearbyen. And it's this tiny little village. I think of like 2,500 people. I, I got it pulled up. 2,300. It's located 78 degrees north. It's the world's northernmost permanent settlement. I'm gonna just read some. <laughs> I'm gonna just read some sentences from this article, because it has got to is the by far the worst place to live. Okay, when the sun sets on October 5th each year, the town will not see it again for 155 days until March 8th of the next year. So, so the first thing we got is the darkness with no sun for 155 days. That's over a third of the year. Okay, all right, we got that. Dark all the time, get used to it. And I'm telling you, you should see some pictures of this place. It looks like Mars. It looks like these buildings that were built for battle are sitting on Mars. There's no vegetation, there's no trees, there's no plants, only gray. Gray dirt is about all they got. Now, this article makes a claim that climate change is responsible for the deterioration of the city. I can't deny that. The only thing we can talk about is who's responsible for climate change. But we'll save that discussion for a different day. So for the past 10 years, it's been getting warmer. The winter and the summers have been getting warmer. <laughs> and I bet you the residents are like, 
thank goodness it's getting warmer. It's the coldest city in the world. We want warmth. But I don't know. Maybe they're not. Maybe they'd want it to stay frozen so they can just live in the ice. But since 2014, the changing weather conditions have led to avalanche. Man, you try to read while you're being recorded. Since 2014, these changing weather conditions have led to ev- ev- have led to avalanches on the slopes above the town, something residents have never seen before. Okay, so now we got the dark for 155 days a year from October to March. We got avalanches now from climate change. In December of 2015, an avalanche killed two people and destroyed 11 homes at the base of the something, something, something top mountain. In February 2017, another avalanche wiped away six more housing units. So we got the cold, we got the dark, we got avalanches that are destroying 16, 17 houses every couple years. Since 2018, the Norwegian government has invested about $82 million on new housing and protective measures such as avalanche barriers. But they still have another 142 homes that are described as being in the hazardous area. So this town gets some tourists. I don't know what the industry is, but uh, about 30,000 tourists that travel there per year. So here's another excerpt. Almost none of the 30,000 tourists that traveled along in year by in annually will know that the town is under threat of unpredictable avalanches that threaten life and property. <laughs> so they're saying, look, we got these avalanches, but we need this tourism. So we'll just run them in and out. And as long as they're not here for more than a couple of days, they won't know that these are co- common. Okay. All right. Good idea. Let's keep the tourists coming. We'll build the barriers and we're good to go. So they run out and they build these massive <laughs> avalanche barriers, 10 meters high and 200 meters long. That's designed to prevent the snow from blowing from the east over the mountain's edge towards the town. So we've got the cold, we've got the dark, we've got the avalanches. Now we've got to build these barriers to protect us from the avalanches, which they built in the summer of 2018. So the, this guy says uh, the the... <laughs> The barriers have brought some feeling of security. I live directly below one of the barriers, and I feel safe, (laughs) said this this guy that I can't pronounce his name. Continuing from the article. Unfortunately, the barriers cannot be extended all the way up the valley because the slopes along the Suckertopen have become too steep, which means hundreds of residents who live below the upper reaches are forced to evacuate their homes each winter. Sorry, guys. It's winter. We know you love the dark. We know you love the cold. We know you love no vegetation, but you got to go. But but no, we want to stay here. Nope. You got to go somewhere where it's warm and sunny. No. We want to stay where it's cold and frozen. Well, you can stay, but you know what happens when the avalanche comes down. They're going to destroy your house. The next paragraph from the article. It's only when tourists ask about these strange-looking fortifications that they are told the danger of avalanches, which is increasing year over year. (laughs) These poor tourists are getting duped. And then it's not over. It's not over yet. The next paragraph. As well as the increasing avalanche threat on the mountains, Langenjirbayen, residents are also facing a threat from below ground. Most of the buildings in Longyearbyen have traditionally been built on wooden piles driven six to eight meters into the permafrost. Permafrost. 
According to Professor whatever whatever, Technology Department of the University of Centra and Svoboda. So if you're not familiar with how pilings work, they have these big wooden posts and they got this big giant hammer. And the, the posts are probably, you know, anywhere from eight to ten inches in diameter, sometimes up to a foot. This big giant hammer knocks them in, knocks them in, knocks them in, knocks them in, and just keeps knocking them until they hit something hard. And they can be 20, 30, 40 feet, however long it takes. to You, you know about how long it's going to be before they hit something hard. So they drive these pilings in the ground. And it's mud and rocks all the way down to the permafrost. And this is just a big chunk of ice that's been frozen for who knows how long. And now that's starting to melt. So all their houses are sinking into the mud. So then they go on and on and on and explain how expensive construction is now and what it costs to fix the house. And I'm thinking... Man, these people are tough. Remember back in an episode or two ago, I talked about tough people. These people, they ain't no punks. They're not trying to quit. They don't want to just move to the other side of the mountain where there's no avalanches and there's probably more daylight. They don't want to move to somewhere where their houses don't fall into the mud. They're not worried about that. They want to just stay where they're at. It's their home. They don't want to leave. So they're just dealing with it. And and that is what I think is the worst place to live on the planet. You got the cold, you got the wet, you got the dark, you got the no green. I don't know. I don't know what else would would be bad because after I read this article, I thought about it and I thought, man, what would be worse, the desert or this place? And then I was like, well, the desert, you know, there's at least it's dry. And the wind blows, and you could probably cool off a little bit. Now, what might be worse than this place would be somewhere in, like, South America, where it's hot and muggy and still. That might be worse. I don't know. It would be a toss-up. I don't want anything to do with either one of the two places. But, man, if you've ever wondered the worst place to live in the world, I think we found your spot. Okay, speaking of great places to live... One of the greatest places to live in the entire country is Texas. Unfortunately, we have a governor named Greg Abbott. And unfortunately, this guy has proven to be a spineless, no-backbone-having slug. I realize he's in a wheelchair. I understand that. I don't care. I'm not willing to select our leaders based on whether or not they're in a wheelchair. And they should be held to the same standard, even if they're in a wheelchair. But I wanted to play this clip of Abbott at a Donald J. Trump rally in Conroe a couple weeks ago. Now, Abbott knows that people, the type of people who go to a Trump rally are also the type of people who are kind of had enough with Abbott. He's not a leader. He doesn't have a backbone. He doesn't stand up to anyone. All he cares about is being president. He wants to win the next governor election to lay the groundwork and run for president. And he's not a leader. He's just not. Quite frankly, I think he was elected in office because people felt bad for him because he's in a wheelchair. That's just my opinion. You don't have to agree. So I'm going to play this clip for him. He was tasked with opening for Trump, get the crowd roared up and ready to go. And here's what he does. Doesn't talk about the great state of Texas. Doesn't talk about how he appreciates everyone's patriotism and faithfulness to to the great state of Texas. Doesn't talk about how we got through COVID. Doesn't talk about any of that. Just, it's just Donald J. Trump. He says it seven times in 42 seconds. Just listen. It's so weak. You hear the crowd getting softer and softer. Donald J. Trump, love. 
great state of Texas. And Texans love President Donald J. Trump. He is getting ready to come out here, and he wants to see you show your support for our President Donald J. Trump. Uh. Donald J. Trump, he also... So you get the idea. It's just, it's literally him going Donald J. Trump this, Donald J. Trump that, blah, 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 Donald J. Trump. Now, I don't know the intricacies of how these things work. I don't know if he was given some instructions. Uh, Yes, now, uh, Mr. Abbott, we need you to make sure that you say uh, Donald J. Trump in that form exactly seven times or more in 42 seconds. I don't know if they did that. If they did, I'd tell them no, go SSD, but I'm not doing it. I don't know if Abbott's got the cojones to do that. That's probably why I would never make it in politics. But if they did, he should have said no. If they didn't, he's a little weenie baby who knows that no one really likes him, at least at that rally. I don't think Trump's a big fan of his. He knows he needs him. He knows he needs his support to get everyone in Texas riled up. So if you get a chance, do some research. Go look up Greg Abbott's voting record, what he supported, what he hasn't, and go do some research and make sure that he's the guy that you think you want to vote for. The problem that we have is most people go on the uh, anything but the presidential election. They go through and they vote for the names that they recognize as long as it's with the corresponding party. But go look up Alan West, A-L-L-E-N-W-E-S-T. He's running in the Republican primaries against Abbott. And that's who I will be voting for. And you know what? Not that it matters. In fact, it doesn't matter at all. Happens to be a man with black skin. I don't think that's a reason to vote for someone. But for all of you that say, you're a racist, well, I'm about to vote for a black guy. So remember when, remember you weren't allowed to say that you weren't racist because you had black friends? The new one is going to be, well, just because you voted for a black guy doesn't mean you're not racist. Okay. So yeah, go do some research. Read about those two guys. Oh, poor Beta O'Rourke's going to try again. I, I, I can't wait until he's done running and losing in in elections because I want to tally up how much money he's wasted running and losing elections. I think he's up to a hundred million so far. I could be wrong, but he's going to run for governor too. So he'll probably, probably squeeze out another 40 or 50 million. I imagine his, his donors are probably getting fed up of giving him money and then watching him lose. But uh, yeah, we'll see. We will see. Okay. I think that's all the free info you're getting for today. Still have yet to find a sponsor. What does it take to monetize this thing? You know, one day I want to do this for a living. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not good enough, you know? I don't have sponsors because no one listens, and if no one listens, then no one's going to pay to advertise. Maybe it's because I'm on a channel about like travel and lifestyle, and I talk about politics and a slurry president and race relations and comedy. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to do everything I can to get another show out this week. I still got something I want to talk about. It's kind of intimate. It's kind of personal. And it's very, very much related to timing. So I still, I remember that I told you I got something I want to talk about. I am going to talk about it. I'm going to wait until the right time. And when I do talk about it, you'll know all the details and why I wanted to wait until the right time. So I appreciate you listening to Life in Paradise podcast. I've got some editing to do. I got some groceries to buy. I think there's some big football game called a Super Bowl today. I don't even know who's playing, and that's okay. I kind of like to brag about it that I don't even care. 
I think football is a sport for kids. I think it's fun to watch when you're grown up. I think it's silly to wear another man's shirt. I think it's silly to pump money into an industry that gives you nothing in return. Or maybe it does. Maybe it gives you some joy. It's just my opinion. We don't have to agree. I waste money on all kinds of things that you would be embarrassed of. That's okay. We all waste money on different things. Thanks again for listening. Go out there. Have a good week. Start researching candidates in your local elections. Give something useful to a homeless person. Learn something from an old person. Teach something to a young person. Treat your secretary like she's a queen. Don't be a hypocrite. If you're going to criticize, act. And most of all, keep it tranquilo. I know, I know. Normally I don't do this. But man, this song right here, if you don't feel this song like down in your soul and you don't you don't have like it don't have an effect on you, doesn't grab you. If Lionel Richie can't pick you up and throw you into the love pit on Valentine's Day, <laughs> I don't know who can. I don't know who can. This song will do it right here. I don't care when you were born. I don't care what kind of songs you grew up liking. This song is chock full of love and emotion. And today, music lacks that. Oh.